Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss faithful practices and fresh resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Today, if you opened up a King James Bible, then you are going to find this really interesting. Today, if you don't have any idea if you even own a King James Bible or you know exactly where it is because it hasn't moved, today will also be very interesting to you. I'm with Dr. Mark Ward, a Logos Pro at Faith Life, author of Authorize, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Mark, how are you doing? I am doing very well, rejoicing in the Lord today. Thank you. Good. You're supposed to do that always is what I've read. So, man, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. This is going to be good. I've just been able to connect with you a little bit and, and think about this topic. It's not something that regularly comes to mind for me. Uh, and I suspect that a lot of our listeners are, are going to be the same. It's not going to be something that often uh, comes across their minds. And so tell me. Firstly, just before we get going at all, why is this important? The KJV, we know of, of the KJV-only controversy, and you, you, you'll you touch on that, but you're going to bring out some really interesting other points in this book, Authorized. So, so tell me, just before we get going, why is this topic important for our listeners? Number one, no matter who your listener is, if he or she is a Christian, I say that the price of vernacular translation is eternal vigilance. And uh, I would not like to see King James onlyism go away only to re- be replaced by ESV onlyism or NASB or NIV or anything onlyism. Um, I think talking about how we know when a translation has lived out its useful life for you know being the main translation a church or other institution or individual would use is helpful for us to keep in mind because even though within our lifetimes it's very unlikely that English will change so much that the NIV or ESV will be needed need need to be put to pasture. Nonetheless, uh, the principles um, are relevant even at the level of a thirty years of change. Uh, we need to understand why it's important to have vernacular translations, and the King James provides an excellent test case. Mm, amen and. And if I could offer just one other reason why this is important, it's because at the at the top of the front page or of the, the cover of your book, it just says this, highly recommended, D.A. Carson. Um, and I think that that speaks volumes. He's got a much longer acknowledgement as you get into it. And he, he notes some things about your style, that you have a, a very amusing and helpful style, but with serious scholarship. And and you were telling me a little bit of a funny story about that. How, how did you obtain an endorsement from D.A. Carson, and what was that like? Well, I'll tell you what it was like. I was totally intimidated and nervous, and uh, I was thinking about how Elizabeth... Pride and Prejudice, says to Mr. Collins, the clergyman, uh, as he's about to introduce himself to Mr. Darcy, he says, he says, he will consider it an impertinence. So I didn't want to do it, but my publisher said, you need to do it. You need to ask. So I went ahead and asked D.A. Carson to uh, blurb the book, and um, I failed to attach the PDF to the email, and he wrote back saying, uh, you forgot to attach the PDF to the email, and I'm unwilling to purchase the book. He's kind of uh, being a little sarcastic there. So I was like, oh, no. I immediately wrote, wrote him back, said, ouch, so sorry. Here's the file. And 48 minutes later, this amazing man read the entire book, and he must have because his endorsement shows that he did, and gave me a nice endorsement. And I was utterly blown away. It's been one of the best days of my entire life. 
Yeah, I, I would imagine so. So, man, no. Uh, and he, he does say some really interesting things here. You know, he's talking about those who are convinced of the superiority of the KJV. This is a quote, whether for stylistic, cultural, or pedagogical, theological, or traditional reasons. I think he probably covered the gamut there. Uh, he says, this is the book to read. Mercifully, Dr. Ward does not pummel his readers or sneer at those who take another position. Patiently, chapter by chapter, example by example, he makes his case. All of his work geared toward fostering more and better Bible reading. And then, of course, highly recommended. Now, I think I, I can imagine a little bit of why Dr. Carson enjoyed this is because that that description describes most of his work. Um, uh-huh. He is one of these who does not pummel or sneer, but patiently, chapter by chapter, example by example, makes his case. And so, I mean, if you, if you can... Um, if you can mirror in some way Don Carson's work, then I think then it's absolutely worth uh, a listen in a conversation. A conversation. So without further ado, let's talk about this. One of the main points that you make here, um, and you've already mentioned just a little bit, is that as much as most of us, the mainstream of, of English-speaking believers, are going to sneer uh, at KJV-only-ism, you make the point that many of us are in some way or another beholden to one translation. What do you mean by that? Well, there was a time when there really was effectively only one English translation of the Bible. The King James had centuries of dominance. Those centuries did not begin in 1611. It took decades until the King James itself, you know, pushed aside its challengers. But we had a lot of benefits from that dominance it's a good thing to have one standard translation, or let's say there are values that come along with it. So, you know, there are phrases from the King James that have made it into standard English because it was the source that everyone was aware of, like Shakespeare, like Pilgrim's Progress, and therefore we have a stock of illusions, like by the skin of his teeth. Um, And that's a good thing. We also, you know, almost accidentally memorize verses from scripture when everybody's quoting the same translation. But that time is no longer. The King James is simply no longer the standard, empirically speaking. It's empirical pluralism out there, just like it is in society. And I have come to realize that we cannot recover a, a, a time when only one translation you know, ruled us all and, and bound us. So we need to look for the values in our multiple translation situation. And I've discovered a lot of value there, particularly for people who do not read Greek and Hebrew. And your audience is largely, I assume, and I'm part of your audience, people who have studied the biblical languages, but we're teaching people who haven't. How do we help them to study their Bibles? What tools do we hand them? I think that English Bible translations and comparing them is a comparatively overlooked tool. I mean, it's so easy to do, but are we equipping uh, lay people in the pews with the ability to compare translations? I don't think we're doing a good enough job. And so my book ultimately aims toward that end, trying to help people see through by looking at one translation mainly for most of the book, why it is that we ought to not be looking at one translation mainly in our Bible study, why should why we should use multiple English Bible translations. And I think it's important that you're bringing out your, your main motivation here is in understanding the scriptures for for uh, a common person, a lay person, if you will, someone who's not going to have this. Um, and I feel common most days, so it's not a derogatory word. Those who are busy doing uh, other very important things besides learning Greek and Hebrew. 
they need, as you're saying, multiple translations to kind of get at what's going on here. But then I'm curious a little bit, and this is a bit of a uh, just a, a random ministry application question if you're willing to field it for me. You talk about the benefit that the English-speaking world had in having a kind of a standard translation for such a long time uh, as far as uh, having a common, you say, stock of illusions and uh, picking up memorization a little bit more easily because we're always hearing it in the same exact language. I know that's something that's been a challenge to me is kind of uh, unmemorizing another version while I'm studying uh, a, a different one. And so would you recommend that a local church, so you know, many of our, many of our listeners being pastors, those who know the biblical languages but are not, but are teaching those and leading those who don't and probably will never learn the biblical languages, do you recommend that they point uh, always, you know, in their in their sermons, in their in their lessons, in their study time to various translations and how they use the Greek and the Hebrew? Or would you recommend that, on the other hand, they have kind of a standard, our church, you know, viewing this almost as a positive, our church uses the CSB, for example, whatever, so that we can all kind of be on the same uh, literal and metaphorical page. What do you think of those practices? You don't have to necessarily weigh in, but I just, it's something that came to mind. I'd like to hear a little bit of your thoughts. Yeah, I've been in churches for quite some time now in which people were carrying multiple different Bible translations. And that alone, I think, is no problem at all. Um, It's something that I would actually encourage because maybe I'm overreacting a little bit, but I did grow up in King James onlyism. Let me say immediately that the teachers in my King James only Christian school and high school are loving, gracious, godly people who are still my friends and have uh, actually one of them read this book twice and talked it over with me and was very gracious, although he was not persuaded. Um, so I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but um, I do want to inoculate my own children and any churches that I have influence over against one version onlyism. And it's not mainly a negative thing. It's mainly a positive thing. I want them to be gaining the benefit of having multiple translations. I've written several posts on this at the Logos blog. That's what I do full-time, writing for for Logos Bible software. And one of the big points I've made is um, you, as a pastor, ought to safeguard the trust that your people have in the major good evangelical English Bible translations. So if, as a pastor, you only ever bring up the NIV in order to trash it and say, I cannot imagine why these people would do this here, well, I tend to think that um, you ought to be a little more humble, let's say, because Doug Moo was the head of the NIV translation committee, and maybe, just maybe, he had some reasons that you're not yet aware of for what he did, Um, and your people are going to get profit from the new international version, um, no matter what their main version is or if they have one. And they need to get that profit. So don't destabilize their trust in good translations. You know, even the message, which is not a translation, it's a paraphrase. Um, uh, conservative evangelical people like myself really enjoy piling on that thing. And I say, Why? If it provides some sort of edification and insight into Scripture, then it's a good thing as long as people understand what it's trying to do. Um, But all the major evangelical English Bible translations are not paraphrases. They are translations, and they're extremely useful tools. And I would want a pastor to model 
the comparison of English Bible translations in his preaching to show his people implicitly and sometimes explicitly, perhaps in Sunday school, how to do it. Hey, real quick, um, I'll let you, we're getting a little bit of buzz from, I think, maybe a text message or something. Um, and this oh, is one of the inherent yeah. dangers with the phone. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I, I think we'll probably just, that was a, a great explanation and we'll probably just keep it and, and you know, let, let the listener understand. Um, but I just wanted to, in, in case there was anything that, you know, there was a yeah, few of them. I'm so kidding. I just wanted to make sure you had a, a second to address it if you needed to. It was an editor at Lexham Press messaging me on our internal messaging system, and I just put it on Do Not Disturb. So, um, yeah, no so it's up to you. I think we could do that again or not. Um, you know, I, I think let's keep it. I appreciated it. I think uh, it'll be just fine. And um, okay. For the most part, I think once someone's bought, you know, if they're 15 minutes or 10 minutes into this conversation, they're going to be okay. So, um, okay. Yeah, so I think all should be well with that. Sorry so about that. I'll, no, you're totally fine. I've, man, I, 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 uh, I learned from my, my own uh, mistake anyway. So I've, I've done it a couple times now on the podcast. So, um, I, I only have the leg up of uh, negative experience. So, um, I will. Uh, sorry. So you're in your inning and talking about how the value of these things. So I'm going to pick up from there. And um, I, so we've we've covered a lot of the the basic ground I wanted to cover. And one of the other things I, I certainly want to talk about is this concept of. Uh, and is false friends, right? That's the... Yeah. Okay, I don't want to give you a softball that's really not one. So, all right, I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll move into that moment real quick. You know, I appreciate that. I have heard um, different different ways of doing this. I've been a part of churches that did this in different ways, and I really value that. You know, not not to, to steward the the trust that is given to you as a teacher, a leader, a pastor in a local church, um, even though... Your people are going to make their own informed decision, hopefully, about how they're using a translation. But just the, the trust that they invest in you and stewarding that well and not, not using that as a way to um, promote some kind of tribalism or something. I, I value that. I really do extensively. Um, I understand just the propensity as an individual Christian to, to lean toward just, well, this is what I normally read and this is what I'm going to keep reading. And this is probably what I'm going to read in 20 years and probably what I'm going to read in 50 years. And um but at the same time, acknowledging the the benefit of of viewing multiple translations, especially if you're not digging into the original language of something, then then it might be really helpful. In fact, that was one of the things in in a a really basic hermeneutics course I took um, and, and during my bachelor's degree a while ago, and um, just a very helpful point for those of us who did not yet have any kind of Greek or Hebrew knowledge to just examine differences in translation. We actually used um, one of Logos's features for that. So a little shout out there to Faith Life. Um, m- much thanks for getting me through my bachelor's degree. Um, but no, I, I appreciate that. And one of the one of the things that you bring up in the book and, and what you've, you've described as kind of a major contribution is the idea of false friends. Tell us a little bit about what you mean when you use that term and why it matters to us. Well, let me step one step back here and try to talk to the people I imagine are in your audience. Um, I grew up within a King James-only context, and I'm betting there are a few people out there in your audience who did, but most didn't. And most people are telling me that King James-onlyism has been far off their radar for forever. But if you're a pastor, and you're the pastor of a reasonably conservative evangelical church, 
you're going to get phone calls from people who are looking for a church, and their very first question is going to be, what Bible translation do you use? If they ask you that question, more than likely, they're King James only, and more than likely, they are true sheep of Jesus Christ who need careful shepherding. And if you dive into the relative merits of the Byzantine versus Alexandrian textual families, you will put them on the defensive and be introducing a topic that really very, very few King James-only people can discuss um, with any sort of direct knowledge, because how many people in the church are called to read Greek? Very few. And so by definition, by the nature of the case, most King James-only people are taking all of their information about textual criticism second or third or fourth hand, which is what most people do in non-King James-only churches. So it's so when you start talking about this Greek text versus that Greek text, you're actually um, not talking about textual criticism. You're talking about which authority should someone trust. Should this King James-only person trust their old pastor, the books they've read, or should they trust the authorities that you trust? That's a very different discussion. I'm trying to move the discussion of Bible versions um, with anyone who's King James only or King James preferred away from textual criticism, though I make very brief mention of that in the book, over to English. And as soon as you bring up the difficult English of the King James, you will get this immediate response from anyone who prefers the King James. They'll say, well, yes, okay, there are archaic words in there, but are you too lazy to use a dictionary? Are you going to dumb down the English language? I'm trying to handle objections like that. And one of the ways that I, one of the major ways, I guess the major way that I handle the objection, why don't you use a dictionary, you lazy person, is by pointing out that a dictionary cannot help you with every problem that King James English presents. English has changed in 400 years in such a way that we all know there are dead words like besom, chambering, and emerald, words that we don't use anymore. We have words like broom and immorality and tumor instead. And yes, you can look those up. Whether people actually look them up, I'm not so sure, but you can. So there's some, there's some uh, truth in that objection. But what I see that most people don't acknowledge or even realize, and I'm going to say 99.9% .9 of King James readers don't acknowledge or realize the concept of Paul's friends, words that we still use, but in the last 400 years have changed their meaning in such a way that modern readers will necessarily miss what's going on. That's the concept of false friends. So now I, I, I see exactly what you're saying because I remember distinctly a time in, uh, I believe, high school. There was, a, there was a younger guy. I had gone to church with him. He had been really just studying the scriptures and very just voraciously reading. And, um, but all he had was a King James Bible. And so he comes to me and he says, what about this verse? And I, I wish I could remember what the verse was, what the word was, but it was not, it wasn't one of these dead words. It was one of these false friends. It was a word that obscured the meaning of the text by using a word that now has a different meaning than it did then. So it was an applicable translation at the time and is now no longer a valid, applicable, helpful translation. And I, I remember basically saying something to the effect of just use anything but the King James, which I don't want to. I don't want to push that opinion on, on you or on this this book whatsoever, because I hear your your compassion for those who are King James only, and I'm certain that you can um, 
through through maybe a little bit more diligence ascertain uh, the original meaning of the text. Um, but I just remember saying something like, you know, most of the major translations are going to be just fine, except for this one, because of this reason. And so I, I hear you not saying don't use the King James, but I hear you saying we must, must, must use a variety of English translations um, if we're going to get to that meaning. And I also hear behind all of this, you know, you mentioned the priesthood of all believers as kind of the theological underpinning for why we need to have translations in the vernacular and not the vernacular of 400 years ago, but the vernacular of today. But I also hear a doctrine of scripture. You, you mentioned whether or not you know, you're kind of speculating, do people really actually even look up some of those words when they're reading? And I, I would imagine most don't. And I think in, in many ways that that's driven by, and this is this can happen, I think, to those of us who grew up with the NIV or the ESV or, or, or we like the Holman or whatever we love, um, is almost this idea that we're not engaging our minds to understand what the words mean in at a at a definition level and a clausal level, just the syntax to understand to ascertain the meaning of the author. We're we're kind of importing this idea of a devotional reading of the text in such a way that just by virtue of looking at the words on the page, we're going to have some kind of spiritual experience. And so the idea that meaning is found in ascertaining the intention of the author, right? The author's intended meaning is the meaning of the text and what we work from for application is kind of underlying this in some ways, right? I mean, would, would you agree with that? Am I, am I maybe uh, getting off on a tangent here? Yeah. No, that's not a tangent. In Orthodox, Evangelical, Reformation, Protestantism, and I'd like to say in Orthodox Christianity, the ultimate authority for everything that we believe and practice has got to be the Greek and the Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic there some places in the Old Testament, and actually a little bit in the New. The originals are the authority. And... Where, where we don't go in Orthodox Christianity is where Islam goes, <clears throat> typically. Now, Islam is not united on this. I did a little poking into this. But a lot of Islamic scholars <clears throat> have said that only the Quran in the original Arabic is truly the, the word of Allah. We, along with the King James translators, say explicitly that every good translation is God's word. But when they do differ, um, and when really fine questions of theology come up, we don't we, we know intuitively we don't appeal ultimately to the English translation. We appeal ultimately to the Greek and the Hebrew. So what I say about English translations is that they are the best tool that most of us have for getting to God's word. I kind of paused awkwardly there. This might need to be edited. I forgot what your question was. No, you're good. I'll I'll edit there. I think no, you're. I think that was a a, a great reply. All as well. Um, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't like we had stalled out or something on the Wi-Fi. So um, I, I think I think we're all all good on that. Um, I want to. We've got. We've, we're looking at maybe you know five to ten minutes left here. Um, we we've hit most of our major points, and I want to. I don't want to get too much into examples because I want to leave uh, as much of that to you. You've already, apparently, according to Don Carson, done a fantastic job 
um, example by example, pointing these things out. And so I don't, I want to leave that to the book. You know, it's, it's succinct. It's less than 200 pages. Don Carson read it in 48 minutes, whatever that means for the rest Uh of us. And, And so I want, I want our readers to go pick this up, um, if they want to buy the digital edition from Faith Life, have it in Logos. I'm sure that would be helpful. Buy the print edition from Lexham. What, what, whatever it's going to be for them that's going to be most useful. But I, I want to leave that to the book, but I still want to talk about these manuscript differences, okay? So for yeah. most, for, for ministry practice and for most of the people in our churches, um, godly people who are, are working for his kingdom diligently and, and, and treasuring Christ, his son, this is not going to be a conversation. This is not going to come up regularly. There may be some for whom it is it is a problem. They understand at least a little bit of what's going on, and they want to have that conversation, let alone those of us who work in some kind of biblical studies um, divinity field. So, so tell me, just give me the, the very, very basic primer of the manuscript differences in the King James tradition and most modern English translations, and then, and then uh, touch on some of the finer points, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, the, the very most basic fact is that when the New Testament was written, and this is true of the Old Testament as well, um, there were no computers, and there was no movable type printing. And so every single manuscript of the Greek New Testament, as of the Hebrew Old Testament, had to be copied out by hand. And it's helpful to think, as my pastor of 18 years, uh, Mark Minnick, who endorsed the book too, said to me many times, um, it's helpful to think of these as somebody's Bible. You know, we carry Bibles around that uh, we can, you know, we can easily get a replacement, but somebody way back when couldn't do that. It was very expensive, and they spent good money to have the Bible copied for them. Um, humans can do many, many things, but one thing they cannot do, humanly cannot do, is copy out a very, very long book without making a single mistake. You have various kinds of mistakes where you're accidentally copying one line twice or accidentally skipping a line. There are mistakes like one called metathesis, where you're switching two letters or switching two words. And then there are the um, so-called purposeful changes and it's a little difficult to know why a given you know, manuscript has a difference from others. I'm talking here at the most basic level. Um, what we have is a bunch of manuscripts, uh, nearly 6,000 of the Greek New Testament, although very few of them are the entire Greek New Testament. Some of them are just tiny scraps. Going all the way back to the 2nd century, um, and we've got to make some kind of judgment, you know, which of these has the original reading. And this freaks people out and is a big reason for the existence and persistence of King James Thomism. No Christian likes the idea that we've got different Bibles out there. That's really alarming. I want to know what did God say. And... Um, I'm concerned that the people within King James Onlyism and anyone else alarmed by this who doesn't read Greek is really at the mercy of whichever authorities they trust. And those authorities may not be trustworthy. They themselves may not be able to read Greek very well. 
And in the case of King James Onlyism, that is the case. The, the, the authorities are not trustworthy. Um, and what they've tried to do is whip up alarm over these differences. So in my book, I spend a very brief amount of time on textual criticism, and the only thing I'm trying to do there um, is, is not take a final position on which text is right and which theory of textual criticism is correct. I'm just trying to tamp down that fear and get people to trust what they have in their hands. And actually, I don't care what they have in their hands. All of the options, in my judgment, are good. You take the, uh, the Textus Receptus, which underlies the King James and the New King James, and a couple other more obscure modern translations like the modern English version, which is um, getting a little bit of press nowadays, and the, I, you know, there are various modern King James version attempts. Um, the Textus Receptus underlies those. That's in general what's called the majority or Byzantine text. Um, all the other translations out there in English and most of them around the world are made from a critical text, which only means um, the science of textual criticism as it's developed has produced this text. And I've done, I've made, uh, a, I've put together a project called kjvparallelbible.org, which is being launched on the very same day as my book, Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, where you can actually look in English at all the differences between the Textus Receptus and the critical text. And the reason I don't care which text you use is that on this site, you will see verse after verse after verse after verse, which is exactly the same. And the great majority of the differences that you'll see between the two texts, and this site puts them in English for you, the great majority are minor. So if you prefer the Textus Receptus, I say fine, go for it. The point of my book is make a vernacular translation out of it. Use a vernacular translation of it. 1 Corinthians 14 ties intelligibility to edification. If you're going to edify people, you have to use words that they will understand. That is the argument of the book. And that's why I don't want to spend time on textual criticism. It's, that's not going to be edifying for my intended audience. I'm happy to jaw about that at scholarly societies. But I actually don't think that people who cannot read Greek should be arguing about textual criticism. Proverbs 18.13 says, whoever answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. So I don't discuss um, which manuscripts in ancient Chinese of Confucius are the most accurate ones. Um, I think that people ought to have that same reticence if they don't read Greek to discussing textual criticism. And it should instead focus on what the Bible says clearly which is that we ought to be able to understand the words of God in translation. Amen. Again, I, I'm really encouraged by your commitment to uh, ministry in this, your commitment to being pastoral in this, your commitment to the edification of the saints in this. I think um, all who undertake any kind of academic understanding of the scriptures and theology and doctrine ought to keep in mind that they are but one ministry of the church and their ministry is meant to build up the rest Amen. of the church. And so, man, I appreciate that. Um, in, in, in the book, as I've been able to look over it, I'm seeing that same kind of passion that it's, this is not jargon laden. It's certainly not, um, it's certainly not, more wordy than it needs to be. It's it's written well. It's written to be read. It's written to be understood. And yet, as you've clearly demonstrated in this 
this interview at least, um, you, you've, you're, you're not one who's answering before hearing the matter. You've certainly looked into this. You've certainly studied it. You understand the discipline of text criticism. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your, your attitude toward it. One of the things that we generally like to close out with is asking what passage of Scripture you have been dwelling on, uh, what you've been meditating on, what you've been studying, and what kind of fruit that's been bearing in your life. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to go to 1 Corinthians 14. The major advance that I felt I made for myself, my own personal understanding of the Bible, as I worked on this project, and has been sticking with me in the months since I've completed it, because I've been promoting the book and talking about it. I've been dwelling on 1 Corinthians 14. And I, as I count it, six or seven times in this passage, Paul draws a connection between intelligibility and edification. So there are some nerdy types who listen to the Exegetical Tools podcast who are very adept at digging into the nitty-gritty of textual criticism and mastering large amounts of data, and I honor those people. I tend to be a popularizer who takes the work of those people and makes it more accessible uh, to those uh, who haven't had the opportunity to study like that or don't quite have the gifts and inclination to do it. But I think what you just said is so important that everybody who works in this kind of field of biblical studies ought to be thinking to himself or herself, I am a, a minister within the church. Whether you're a formal minister or not, whether you could hold the office of elder or not, you are a gift to the church insofar as you are a Bible teacher. Ephesians 4 says that pastors and teachers are gifts to the church. So you ought to be able to, uh, you ought to use 1 Corinthians 14 the way I have tried to do, to be one more tether between your work and the actual life of the body. If no one can possibly understand what you're saying, if no one in the audience that God's actually given you can follow, then you're a tree falling in the forest that no one can hear. You're not edifying. You might as well be babbling in a language they can't understand at all. Um, Paul is rigorous in his thinking, and some of the things he wrote are hard to understand. Second Peter 3.16 tells us that. But he sets up for us an ideal in which we are working as hard as possible to make what we're saying, what we're teaching, accessible to the precious sheep in Christ's body. Amen. Hey, thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate that. I really hope, I really do, I really hope our listeners are going to check this out. I think I think it's going to be beneficial, especially for those who are pastors, especially for those who are going to have people in their congregation they're called to care for who are going to have questions about this. It's worth it. Like you said, I mean, there. if you're a local pastor in an in even remotely conservative church, then you're going to field calls from people who have these questions and these concerns. And knowing what's going on 
uh, behind the scenes is going to be helpful. Knowing how to address it in a pastoral way is going to be helpful. I think your book, um, well, it, I will add, I will add, put my name up by Don Carson's highly recommended. Um, and so now that I've put my name up there, everyone else has to, I hope, but, um, Highly recommended. I really hope they'll pick up Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. We will have links to that up on the exegeticaltools.com webpage. It comes out on what day, Mark? January 24th, 2018. Okay, many of our listeners are going to be listening to this on that day or just a couple days before. And so I really hope they'll check this out and they'll make good use of it. Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm. 